We're in Galatians 5 for the last week today, wrapping up a short series on Galatians, starting in verse 13. So if you have a Bible, you could get that out and open up to Galatians 5. The book of Acts tells us that fairly late in the Apostle Paul's ministry, when he was in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem fulfilling a vow that he'd made, some, um, uh, some of his Jewish opponents spotted him there and they incited a crowd against him and he was almost lynched. But just in time, the Romans who policed that temple at the time swooped in, they rescued Paul, they, they quelled the disturbance, and, and Paul was safe. The Romans had saved him. From the mob. Uh, could we have the slides? We have some slides here. All right, so there's Paul. Who, who said that uh, flannel graphs were dead? And then <laughs> the mob, yes. And the Roman soldier, right? Okay. Um, all right, now, Luke, there's a, there's a text to help you follow along to know when to push the next slide. Do you have that there? We do now. Great. Okay, so if you can find where you are on the bottom of page one there, we're on slide three. Yeah, well, let's have the next slide, and that'll be slide three, because the first slide was slide zero. I, I uh, was off on my numbering a little bit. Can we go to the next slide? Okay. So the Romans didn't just let Paul go when they'd rescued him. Rather, they, they kept him incarcerated until they could figure out what the trouble was about and what to do with him. And, and that imprisonment lasted for a long time. It lasted for years. In fact, when the book of Acts ends, Paul is still in bondage. Now, I tell you that story not because it has anything directly to do with the book of Galatians, but, but rather because it serves as a nice analogy of what happened to the Galatians whom Paul was writing to, and not only to the Galatians, but to some of us as well. Let me explain. But before the Galatians, before you and I met Jesus Christ, we were in danger of being destroyed, not by a violent mob, but by what Paul calls the flesh. When Paul says the flesh, some translations call it the sinful nature, Paul is talking about, about a way of living our life which is apart from God. He's talking about just doing what comes naturally, doing whatever feels good at the moment. And if you've got any spiritual awareness at all, then you quickly discover that living this way will eventually destroy you. It's like a lynch mob. But like Paul from the mob in Jerusalem, the Galatians had been dramatically rescued from the flesh. First, by Jesus Christ, and then, as we've seen as we've been working our way through Galatians, by some Jewish um, Christians from Jerusalem who'd come along and they'd offered the Galatians, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament law, a, a set of commandments which could teach the Galatians not to live by the flesh. Because the flesh wants to run amok, to live however we want, but, but the law gives us some boundaries, it gives us some directions, it teaches us how to live a godly life, it commands us don't run amok. Don't just live however you want or you'll destroy your life. Rather, obey God. Keep his commandments. 
That's what the law does. And, and this was the Galatians' experience of the law. And, and some of us have also experienced God's law this way. It, it saves us from the destruction of the flesh. It, it gives us safety. It gives us security, protecting us from an immoral life run amok. But Paul points out in Galatians that there's a problem with the law as a solution to the flesh problem. And that is that much like the Romans did to Paul, the law winds up actually incarcerating and enslaving us. It saves us from moral destruction. It protects us from, uh, from destruction by the flesh by keeping us safe inside the confines of a prison. The law fills our lives with rules. Do this. Don't do this. And you will be safe from moral destruction. But as we saw two weeks ago, if we don't keep all the rules all the time, the law curses and condemns us. Boy, it's nice to be saved from the lynch mob, but it's not so great when your savior turns out to be a slave master. And that's just what the law does, Paul says. And, and throughout Galatians, Paul has been pleading with the Galatians and with us not to go there. Not to go, the root of the law. And, and now in Galatians 5, Paul offers us a better solution to the flesh problem. A solution which sets the Galatians and us free from having to keep the law. Galatians 5.1 It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Since Christ came, Paul is set, saying, we don't have to keep the law. The Old Testament law does not have authority over us anymore. But then what? Where does that leave us? Do we go back to the flesh? Do we, do we go back to living however we want again? And if not, who can save us from the lynch mob? Well, in today's pas passage, Paul is going to answer those questions. In verse 13, Paul begins, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't go back to the flesh, Paul says. Don't let the flesh have its way with you. The flesh is still a killer. The flesh is still what we need to be saved from. Down in verses 19 to 21, Paul lists some of the acts of the flesh. And he lists them, or as he lists them, he chunks them into categories. And the categories have to do with our various relationships. First, our sexual relationships. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Second, our spiritual relationships, idolatry and witchcraft. Third, our personal relationships, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. And then finally, our relationship to uh, mood-altering substances and, and stimulations, drunkenness and orgies and the like. All these behaviors feel good. They all come naturally. They, they flow easily out of our inner desires and passions. As we crave, as, as we thirst to, to feel pleasure, to, to numb the pain, to feel good about ourselves, to, to feel special and important. These are all acts of the flesh. They're all about, about finding our way and, and, and going what feels right, going with what feels right to us. We're physically attracted to someone, so we wind up sleeping with them. We pursue spiritual avenues outside of Jesus, which can get us to where we want to go in life, because Jesus doesn't seem to be doing such a good job. We uh, tear down others to build ourselves up. 
we um, seek solace or, or pleasure in substances or images or one-night encounters. But all of these acts of the flesh are like a big bag of potato chips. They feel pretty good going down and you, you can't stop eating them, but they don't satisfy. They don't nourish and, and they can leave us with a serious stomachache the morning after. The flesh really is a lynch mob. Now notice in this list Paul gives where he directs the bulk of his attention as he points us to these acts of the flesh. He, he doesn't direct the bulk of his attention to sex or to alcohol or even to idolatry. And maybe it's because these are obvious sins to good church folk, or at least they should be. But Paul devotes the bulk of his attention to the many sins which have to do with personal relationships to hatred, to discord, to jealousy, to rage, etc. You see, the Galatians had a serious problem with these relational sins, like most church folk today still do. Look at Paul's warning in verse 15. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by one another. And verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. It doesn't sound like the Galatians were getting along too well. It's so easy not to get along with people, isn't it? It's so easy to grumble about people, to, to get mad at them, especially when you drive. It's so easy to be jealous, to, to gossip. It's so easy to, to criticize, especially when we have to work with annoying people every day. It's so easy to talk about aggravating people behind their backs with someone who also finds them aggravating. All that just flows so naturally out of us. It's all uh, from the flesh. And you know what? The, the law can't help us here. I mean, the law can tell us to be kind. It can tell us to love. We all know that. But, but it can't help us to do it. I t I'll tell you, I've been in some legalistic churches, churches which had lots of religious rules, churches which prided themselves on being real holy. And, you know, invariably, all of the people in those churches seem to be really nice on the surface. They're all smiles and warm handshakes and how-do-you-do's on Sunday mornings. But when you got to know them, when you got to know what was really going on underneath, there was gossip and there was slander and bitterness and feuding, sometimes even abuse. Because no matter what the rules say, we can't make ourselves treat others as we should. And so the best we can do is cover up the mess with a nice religious facade. And this seems to be what was happening in Galatia, except they weren't even covering it over very well because Paul knew about it. He knew they were arguing, they were criticizing, they were envying, all the while while they're trying to keep the law and be holy. Now notice the irony of this. Paul points it out in verse 14. He says, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that, right? He said, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor are the two greatest commandments. The whole law hangs on those two. And yet, when we're trying to live by the law, to live the Christian life by focusing on religious rules, those are the very two commandments we can't seem to quite ever pull off. We can't really love people. I mean, we can love the nice people, the attractive people. We can love the person that we're in love with. When that flesh 
uh, feels loving toward that person, but, but what about when we fall back out of love? And what about all the annoying and the petty and the aggravating people who insist on coming to our church and, 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 and working, with, working with us? The flesh doesn't want to love them, does it? And the law can wag its finger accusingly at us, at the flesh, and say, love them anyway. But the law can't help us to do it. In verse 13, Paul tells the Galatians, he tells us, serve one another humbly in love. But we can't do it. By ourselves, we we can't be humble. Uh, we, We can't serve lovingly without getting resentful. Without feeling proud, without feeling better than the people who aren't serving like we know they should be, and we are. So we need another approach. We need another approach. We need new hearts. We need someone besides the law, besides the rules, to save us from the lynch mob of the flesh. And in verse 16, Paul points out the answer. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. You see, the law is, is like a mirror. It can show you what's wrong. It, it can tell you, you need to wash your face. <laughs> but the law can't lift a finger to actually clean you up. To actually fix what's wrong, we need something more powerful, more cleansing, more dynamic. We need the Spirit. The Spirit can can get inside of you. The Spirit can change your heart. The Spirit is God with us. The, The Spirit of God and all of His awesome, loving power right inside of us, changing our hearts, opening our eyes to spiritual realities, to what's really going on inside of us, to what God wants to do for us. The Spirit also gives us new desires. The Spirit empowers us to live this new life. But Paul continues, if the Spirit is among us as a community of God's people, then we're in the midst of a battle. A battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. The two are in conflict with each other. Have you experienced this conflict? Let me put this in perspective. If you remember Paul's theology, then you know that Jesus came and he inaugurated the kingdom of God, the the new age, the age to come. When Jesus died on the cross, when he rose again, Jesus entered into the new creation. Jesus entered into the future life of heaven. He was was resurrected into eternity. And, And Paul tells us, the New Testament tells us that if we are in Christ, if our faith is in Christ, then we have died with Christ to the present old age and we have been raised with Christ and have begun to live in the age to come, in newness of life. And this is the way Paul sees these two ages. The old age is the age of the flesh and the new age is the age of the spirit. The old age is the age when God gave us his law to to show us our sin, to to restrain our sin. Though the law never really worked to, to help us completely overcome our sin. Instead, it just left us in bondage. 
But now that Christ has come, the new age has begun, the, the age to come. Uh, this is the age of the, the spirit, um, when, when God gives us a new heart so that we can actually love. And so that we can fulfill the deepest intention that the law was always pointing toward. But remember, Paul's theology is an already but not yet theology. We already live in the new age, but we have not yet completely moved out of the old age, right? That's why we have this conflict going on, this battle within us. The flesh still exerts an, an influence over us, but, but so does the spirit. So who's going to win this conflict? Should we be encouraged or should we be discouraged about this battle? Do we have any hope that the Spirit's going to win out over the flesh in our lives? Well, look at the end of verse 17. English translations are divided about how to translate this Greek phrase here. Literally, it reads, So that not, whatever you want, these things you might do. Now, you have to ponder that a while to try to figure out what that means. And some translations, like the older NIV, translated it this way. They said, because of this conflict between the flesh and the spirit, you do not do what you want. In that translation, the flesh wins. The, the spirit makes you want to do what's right, but, but because of the flesh, you, you don't do it. But I'm convinced that the new NIV has it right. Both because it seems like a better translation of the Greek and it because, because it fits better Paul's argument here. The, the new NIV translates it this way. It says, because of this conflict between the flesh and the spirit, you are not to do whatever you want. You are not to do whatever you want. The flesh may have you wanting the wrong thing, but you are not to do it. Why? Because you have the spirit and the spirit enables you to do what's right. That's what Paul says in verses 24 to 25. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You are not to do whatever you want. You see, the old age in which the flesh reigned is passing away. If we are in Jesus, then, then we've died to it, just like Jesus did. And, and so we crucify the flesh. We put its passions to death. We don't have to follow the desires of the flesh anymore. We don't have to give in to everything that feels good in the moment. To do that would be to, to throw ourselves back at the mercy of the lynch mob again. The, the very thing that God has rescued us from. I mean, the old age is a dead-end road. Look at verse 21. Paul says this after he finishes describing the acts of the flesh. He says, I warn you, as I did before, those who live that way will not inherit the kingdom of God. No, we can now move upstairs, so to speak, to the, to the kingdom, to the new age, where we can live in the resurrection power of the Spirit. The Spirit gives us new life. The, the Spirit is, is fitting us to live in the, in the new creation, an age which goes on forever. And, and so we can live like people of the kingdom. We, we can and, and are. God is getting us ready now for heaven, for our destiny. He's teaching us to learn to live the life of the future now. Theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, Christian holiness consists not of trying as hard as we can to be good, 
but rather of learning to live in the new world created by Easter. When Jesus inaugurated that age to come, that new creation, and invited us to begin to participate in it. A world which one day will prevail and will reach its consummation fully and completely when Jesus comes back. But even now, as Jesus' people, as a community filled with the Holy Spirit, we are learning, Paul says, together how this life works, this life of the new world, this life of the new heavens and the new earth. We're learning how to live it out. We're learning how it works now. This day when, when death will be no more and every tear will be wiped away. And as we learn to begin to participate in this world now by the spirit, which is, is the spirit of this new world, we begin to display for a watching world what this life will be like so that they can see where all things are headed. So that they can get a taste of the heaven that we invite them into through the good news of the gospel, so that they can see why Jesus came and how he's making all things new. They should be able to see it in any local body of believers. Don't you want to be part of a community like that? Amen. The Spirit's teaching us how. Are you listening? Are you learning? The Spirit will empower us to do it. No doubt it's a battle. It's a battle every day, but the Spirit intends to win this battle. So we are to walk in the Spirit, Paul says. And then Paul gives us a picture of what this life of the Spirit looks like. He gives us a list of what the fruit of the Spirit is. Let's walk briefly through this list. First, love. Love is not just a warm feeling, but it's an unconditional deciding and acting to do what's best for someone else. Joy. There's a joy that we experience when, when we share together in what the Spirit is doing in our lives, a joy that we'll never have when we're just striving to keep the rules. Peace. Not just internal peace, not just that peaceful, easy feeling that the eagles sang about, but, but peace in our relationships too. And, and more than that, a taste of the coming peace on earth. God's shalom, the, the overarching wholeness and well-being that this whole world will one day know when Christ reigns over all. Then patience, or better as the new NIV has it, forbearance. Because this word is talking particularly about patience with people. Putting up with people. Hanging in there with people. Not giving up on them. Not writing them off. This patience, this forbearance is what Abraham Lincoln was talking about one day when a carpenter came to his home and um, the carpenter was doing some work there. And, and after spending 15 minutes putting up with Lincoln's notoriously difficult wife, the carpenter was ready to leave. And Honest Abe replied, surely you can endure for 15 minutes what I have put up with for 15 years. <laughs> That's forbearance. It's a fruit of the spirit. Next is kindness. If the passive side of love is forbearance, kindness is the active side of love. Forbearance enables you not to pop the guy in the nose when he's making you so upset. But kindness enables you to actually return his insult with a blessing. Kindness is generous. It's big-hearted. It blesses others with what's good. Next is goodness, which generally means doing good to people every chance you get. Then faithfulness, and in the New Testament, this word is almost always directed toward God. It's 
It probably means in this context faithful devotion to God, not only when he's blessing your socks off, but also when things are going rough, when, when God seems far off, when, when it's hard to believe, when your prayers aren't being answered. That's, that's faithfulness. It's hanging in there with God. It's, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Then gentleness. And the Greek word translated gentleness here carries the idea of humility. It's, it's not weakness, but it's strength that's under control. Gentle people don't need to defend themselves or, or brag about themselves or draw attention to themselves. They're, they're free to care about others, even difficult others. And then last, self-control, which is the mastery over self, which allows us to hold our temper, to beat our addictions, to live up to our resolutions and our promises, and to maintain our disciplines. This is amazing fruit. Amen? Amen. And you can be this kind of person if your faith is in Jesus. It doesn't come naturally, but if the Spirit is in your life, He's in your life to make you like this. Because this is the very character of God Himself. If you are God's child, then, then his spirit is making you like this. It's making you like your heavenly father so that you as God's child bear the royal family resemblance. You see, living by the rules is like Christmas tree faith. We take an ordinary evergreen tree, we cut it down, we drag it inside, we dress it all up, and it looks beautiful, right? Right? For a while. But, but it's high maintenance to, to keep up that appearance. We've got to water the thing every day. We, but still, eventually, it, it dries up. It drops its needles. It goes brown. There, there's no life in it. It's all a beautiful facade. A facade which can't last, just like legalistic Christianity. But a fruit tree... Is different. A fruit tree is alive. A, a fruit tree has deep roots which go down into nourishing soil. And, and all by itself, despite itself, a fruit tree produces beautiful blossoms in the spring. And then in the summer and the fall, it produces real fruit, nourishing fruit, sustaining fruit, delicious fruit. That's what the Spirit does in our life. As God comes to be present within us to produce God's own character in our lives, authentically, organically, for real. All right, so let's get practical. How do we live this out? Well, in verses 24 to 25, Paul told us that, that if we follow Christ, we've crucified the flesh with its desires, and we're to keep in step with the Spirit. So this is an everyday choice. To, to live up to our new identity, to, to live in keeping with what's true about us now as followers of Jesus. It's a choice every day to move upstairs from the old age to the new age, from, from flesh control to spirit control. Every day, this choice is an act of faith. Remember, we saw two weeks ago that we live the Christian life not by trying harder to keep the rules, but by trusting more in what Christ is doing in our hearts and in our characters. 
Getting our head in the game of what Christ is doing. Put our trust in that. Walking in that. We, we, we trust that our flesh really was put to death on the cross by Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that the flesh has disappeared. It's still there, right? That's what the battle is about. But it does mean that we've been set free from the power of the flesh. That we're not stuck in the old age like, like we used to. Now we're free and we have the option by faith to move upstairs to the new age. There's been a hole punched in the ceiling. A ladder's come down. We can get away from the flesh. We can move upstairs. So when those fleshly feelings rise up within us, what do we do? We, we look at Jesus. We give him that anger, that, that bitterness. We give him those prideful attitudes. We give him our lust. And we say, I don't want it. That's not me anymore. Jesus, nail it to the cross because I'm choosing by faith to move upstairs. To, to walk in the spirit, to live in love, to live in purity, to produce the fruit of the spirit. Jesus, I'm trusting that you're going to help me. And, and if I fail, which I will sometimes, more than sometimes along the way, I'm trusting that you're going to pick me up, that you're going to forgive me, and that you're going to help me keep trying again. And eventually, I'm going to get this right. I'm going to be transformed. And it's going to be because of you and because my trust is in you. You know, the old Puritans had gotten a bad rap in the popular media, but they actually understood this much better than many of us. They called this, they called it mortification of the flesh, putting the flesh to death. And I like the way J.I. Packer summarizes this teaching. I've quoted this before. He says, this is our aim. It's to drain the life, or it's to so drain the life out of sin that it never moves again. To so drain the life out of sin that it never moves again. That's mortification. That's putting the flesh to death by faith. That's the negative side. The positive side is what the Puritans called vivification of the spirit. Giving the spirit room to lead us. Giving it room to live in us. Trusting the spirit to change us. Going with the flow of the spirit. Paul calls it keeping in step with the spirit. It's an active faith which, which aggressively aims to live a godly life and, and fully expects and trusts that the Spirit is going to make it happen, that the Spirit is going to be producing His fruit in our life. So we put the flesh to death, we give the Spirit room to live, and we do it all by faith. Men's ministry writer Robert Lewis sums it up well when he says, die a little, live a lot. So here's the challenge, two parts, one negative and one positive. First part, is there one thing, is there one act of the flesh that the Holy Spirit has been bringing to your mind this morning? Can you name it? Can you name it for what it really is as an act of the flesh? Will you trust that Jesus wants to help you overcome it? That Jesus wants you to win this battle? Will you believe that he's nailed the power of that thing to the cross and that he set you free? You're free to not do it anymore. You're free to, to move upstairs out of the old age and into the new. And then so second part, can you name that sin's opposite. Can you name the corresponding fruit of the Spirit? So, for example, if, if, if the sin is crankiness, maybe the fruit is patience. 
What's the corresponding fruit, which would be the wonderful opposite of that sin that you're struggling with? Can you name that fruit? And will you choose to exercise your freedom to walk in the Spirit and to expect that the Spirit is going to be changing your heart as you, as you seek to walk in that fruit and that by the Spirit's power, you will actually begin to produce that fruit? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for setting us free from the law. Thank you for rescuing us from the flesh. And we all know the battle that you talk about here. The battle between the flesh and the spirit. And some of us have, we've lost our trust in you. We've grown so discouraged or so distracted or so complacent that we've just been going with the flow of the flesh. I pray that you'd open our eyes to see the wonderful new thing, the new age, the new world, the new life that you've opened up for us and that you'd help us to walk in the spirit. And we will stumble and fall along the way, but I pray that we wouldn't grow discouraged, that you'd pick us up, that you'd get our eyes back on you and that you would produce wonderful fruit in this church body that would show people all around Westchester and Putnam counties how wonderful you are and how wonderful is the age which is coming when Jesus returns. Amen.